Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this morning, Lord, to worship you one more time because you are worthy of all worship and glory, and majesty and honor. Even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, who has entered into the heavenly tabernacle, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. Lord, we thank you that we have such a faithful high priest who perfected forever all those who are the sanctified, these whom you gave to him to save. And Lord, we just pray that you continue to keep us, that we may behold the glory that he had with you before the foundation of the world. And let that be the hope of your people. Let us always be looking heavenward and not to the things of the earth, things that are perishing with time and with use. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Christ that you've given us here. And we just pray that we may continue in that. Even those who hear from afar, Lord, I pray that you bless their hearing and show them the things of Christ. We pray and we thank you for this hour that we shall go into your word, just asking your blessing upon it, asking for illumination from your Holy Spirit that we may see Christ. We pray and thank you in his precious name. Amen. John 11. 17 to 26. John 11, 17 to 26. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. When he came, he found that Lazarus was already buried in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Mother said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Our sermon title is Four Days in the Tomb. Four Days in the Tomb. Or verse 21. Or verse 21. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And whatever you choose to be your sermon title drives the message. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. So the message has been sent to the Lord by the sisters Martha and Mary to inform him that the one whom he loved was sick. And it seems that the last time that Jesus was in the company of this family, everyone was doing well. I don't think Lazarus had any kind of cough during the time that Jesus was there. There wasn't any indication that Lazarus was going to get sick. And it seems that's the story of life. It seems like things just also happen to us, even in our own day and time, that you one time leave the house, you leave a place, 
and everything seemingly is well and the next time you come back you have a different story i remember almost 17 years ago when i left zimbabwe i was at the airport and i was in the company of my mother and even sister ella's brother richard and the next time that we hear things richard is dead from a car accident and the next time that i go back home my mother i'm going home for her funeral so that's just how things go and this is not different from what happened here with this family the lord had left this family well but only later to return to a funeral but after he was gone Lazarus began to come down with something something that caused most likely a fever some unknown deadly sickness that took him apparently very fast it was a sickness that would lead to his immediate death and the sisters looking at their brother's health thought this was something that was beyond their ability to help it was beyond their ability even of their neighbors it was something that was beyond the ability of their homemade remedies i'm sure they had some homemade remedies that they tried to use on him but they saw that these were all inadequate to deal with the matter but this was something that needed the attention of the lord so they sent out their prayer request and the request that they made is actually a prayer that's a prayer request there are just some things that need more than home med remedies there are just some things that are way beyond our capacity to help and in the context of the sisters dealing with their situation it would have been helpful if they had some iphone or android phone to call or send a text message to the lord why because it seems lazarus died the very day that they sent out the message but we are talking about jesus here we are not talking about james we are talking about jesus and jesus has never needed a text message or a phone to know what is going on anywhere or with anyone he is god and therefore he knows all things he is omniscient and he is omnipresent he knows all things and is limited by nothing but such was life then they did not have the kind of communication abilities and devices like we have in our own time and it is by the lost grace that one knows that they have a situation that requires the immediate attention of the lord it is by the lord's grace that you find yourself with a situation that you realize this needs the attention of jesus because there are many even now who are caught up in very difficult circumstances of life who do not know where to go they don't know where to go some seek refuge in drugs why because they have no way to go some seek refuge in beer and others who consult their friends when they should be going to the lord know that there's anything bad with consulting friends and seeking help from friends but there're just some things that you have to tell jesus first 
So people will consult every physician, every other physician, but never come to the Lord. But even more, we are talking about the gospel. Sin and salvation are the matters for which we should be going to the Lord and nowhere else. For the sickness of sin is a matter that only the Lord can handle. So praise the Lord that when there's sickness, I don't think that's what I meant to say. I meant to say praise the Lord when there's sickness because sometimes it may be his way of introducing himself to you or someone. The Lord has introduced himself to many a people through sickness. <laughs> we see that with the blind beggars, the people who had leprosy, the woman with the issue of blood, the Syrophoenician woman, Jairus and his daughter, all these people, they came to Christ through sickness. So the Lord has not stopped using sickness as a way of introducing himself to his people. And by sickness, we are not just saying some physical disease situation, but it's any condition that you may find yourself in, any trying circumstance is a type or nature of sickness. So the Lord sometimes comes riding on the wings of a storm that has been appointed for you that he may say, peace, be still. <laughs> but the Lord receives the prayer request. Going back to our story, the Lord receives the prayer request and determines not to catch a taxi to rush to Bethany. Rather, he stays two more days apparently because he loved them. And by this, the Lord was not being lazy or uncaring because some people kind of struggle with that showing of love. They think, okay, if you love someone, then you have to catch the next taxi, okay? And you have to zoom past all the traffic lights if possible. But the text says he stayed two more days as a demonstration of his love for them. And this is how he determined to show them how much he loved them and that goes against our sense of what love is supposed to be. The demonstration of his love was not in his delay necessarily, but in what he was going to do for them on account of that delay. So it is the appointed end that the Lord was going to demonstrate his love for them. And so the delay was necessary to demonstrate that love. But the Lord did not delay to come. He came at the appointed time. God does not delay. There's nothing that gets in the way of him. We get late to appointments because of traffic, because of something that happens. But the Lord is never delayed in the sense that we are delayed. Why? Because there's nothing that's in his way. <laughs> he is coming in his appointed time. It is the sisters who thought he had delayed because they were operating at a different schedule than the Lord. They had their own expectation of when things were supposed to happen. But the apparent delay, if we may call it that, was for a much bigger purpose. Because the Lord, in the process of going to Bethany, he also had an appointment with blind but mirrors in Jericho. In Luke 18, verses 35 to 43, 
Jesus had to pass through Jericho on his way to Bethany. And not only that, he also had to pass through Zacchaeus' house. He had to pass through Zacchaeus' house in Luke 19, verse 1 to 10. So his itinerary was pegged. Because when he gets to Bethany with this trip, when he leaves Zacchaeus' house to go to Bethany, this is where he goes to die. He goes to die. So wherever he was, he passed through Jericho because he had an appointment with Bartimaeus, an appointment with Zacchaeus, serving his people along the way. And if you go and read Luke 18, you're going to hear Jesus already prophesying of his death, which was going to be accomplished at Jerusalem, for which the death and resurrection of Lazarus was going to be the matchstick that lit the gunpowder and took him to the cross. So the death and resurrection of Lazarus is a very critical point in the mystery of the Lord. It's a critical time marker of what has to happen. And so the delay of the Lord was not anything to do with the sisters themselves, but Everything was happening according to his larger ministry. It was about him. It was about him. And I like this saying that the Lord was operating. I don't know if you have heard some people say, an emergency on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. (laughs) I used to have a friend who used to love to use that in Dayton. Like, oh, well. An emergency on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. (laughs) So the Lord attends to some other business on his agenda wherever he was before he turned his attention towards the sister's prayer. But he was not ignoring the sister's request as things may appear. He loved the sisters and their brother Lazarus, so his apparent delay was purposeful. It was for their sake and those of the disciples that they may believe. That's what Jesus told us, that they may believe. And sometimes our faith has to be squeezed by trials that we may see that the Lord is faithful. And for the trial to really be a trial, there has to be a delay in the solution. The solution cannot come right away. Otherwise, it's not a trial. So for a trial to be a trial, there has to be a time gap between when you have the trial and when the solution comes. (laughs) And the Lord knows about this. And that's why he brings trials. Lazarus had to get sick and die because God had a purpose with the sickness of Lazarus. God has purpose with everything. He has purpose with cockroaches, otherwise they would not exist. He has peppers with flies, fleas, bees, and all the things that may annoy you. You have these flying things that just get in your nose, in your face, and they just annoy you to death. But the Lord created them for a purpose. (laughs) They are accomplishing his purpose. But the sickness of Lazarus, we are told, was not unto death. The sickness was to some other bigger and glorious end. It was for the glory of God through the Son. So God is willing to take you through some very trying time, through some sickness, just to glorify himself. 
And it's not up to you to know how God is glorified in that sickness. It is he who knows how he's glorified. So something may happen to you and never appear like God was glorified in it. And yet he was glorified. Why? Because he brought it. (laughs) So the glory that God had with the sickness of Lazarus was that Christ would be glorified in resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. But also it was a picture of the impending or coming death and the resurrection of the Lord himself. But not only that, it was also preaching and teaching the death and resurrection of those that the Lord loves. So it's a gospel moment. And next week, the Lord willing, we are going to be talking again about the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life because that is a blessed hope of the gospel. And it is only the gospel and it is only Jesus who brings that kind of message. That he is the one who is going to raise people and the ones who believe in him who never die. And if they die, they will live. And if they live and they believe, they will never die. (laughs) So that is just saying a lot of things that no ordinary man has any power or ability to make such a high statement. But the sisters think that this trial has come against them because the Lord has kind of forgotten them. Lord, if you have been here, our brother would not have died where the words echoed from the mouths of both sisters. They were disappointed that the Lord did not make himself. There had to be some disappointment. They were disappointed that the Lord did not make himself available to their use and convenience at their time of need. So they say this in much sorrow and in a way to pass some blame to the Lord for not making himself available in good time. But in the ensuing conversation with his disciples, the Lord had told them that Lazarus was sleeping, by which he meant that he was dead. But even as this Lazarus was dead, notice that the Lord still called Lazarus his friend, our friend, even in death. I thought that was very important. Our friend Lazarus is dead. Precious to the Lord is the death of his saints. They are his friends in death and in life. And so the dead in Christ remain friends with Christ. They remain friends even with those who are still alive. But when you are talking about sleeping in the scriptures, it is used in the context of the death of saints. Sleeping is not talked about in the context of the wicked. It is the saints who sleep. And I hope to actually speak more on that sleeping because there is a teaching of the soul sleep. What becomes of the believer when they die? Do you die like a car that is run out of fuel or that has the battery disconnected? Is that the kind of death that the believer actually goes through? Given that we are body and spirit, does the spirit also become unconscious? What becomes of them in the context of the gospel? And I think it's very important for us to find what God has revealed about that matter because there are some people who are saying a lot of things about it that I don't agree with. 
But by sleeping, the disciples interpreted that to mean that Lazarus was just taking a much-needed nap. And so he would be fine after a few hours of rest. And so they could just remain where they were just a little while longer. So the disciples were ignorant of what they were saying. They didn't know exactly what they were saying. And sometimes we also say things ignorantly. We say some things that are off because we are ignorant. And when you are ignorant, you do not know that you are ignorant, (laughs) unfortunately, until the truth has been revealed to us. But see that the Lord did not rebuke them for their misunderstanding of the situation. Rather, he spoke clearly and provided more understanding and said, no, Lazarus is not just taking a nap. Lazarus is dead. And so may we also speak clearly. When the Lord has given us the ability, may we also speak clearly and plainly on the gospel that maybe God may cause sinners to hear the gospel clearly. But the Lord gives a correction and says, no, Lazarus is dead. And this he said plainly. I always wonder when the Holy Spirit just throws words like that in there. I'm like, okay, why not just say, and Jesus said, no, Lazarus is dead. But he tells us that he spoke clearly, plainly, plainly he spoke to them. And that is a testimony of the true preacher of the gospel. The plain truth of the gospel is that men as sinners are not just taking a nap from which they can arise by their own power or choice after they have gotten a little bit of rest. There's a desperate need to speak clearly and plainly that men are not taking a nap in sin, but are born dead in trespasses and sins. Men are born dead with no ability. They have no ability to recover themselves from this death by just some little rest from sleep. Some little rest from sinning. I'm just going to be resting from sinning right now. And when I woke up, I think I'm going to be so good for heaven. <laughs> Sin is such a big matter that it can't be tamed by some conference. You can't go to some conference on how to tame and organize the demons of life and live the powerful and victorious life. <laughs> We're going to have our, our ministry, how to live the victorious life. Women and men of purpose. <laughs> Sinners do not need a little rest. A little rest is not rest. They need complete rest. And the gospel gives us complete rest. And that rest is not entered into until who shows up. Until Jesus shows up. Jesus has to show up if a sinner has to be raised from the dead. Because we now have a gospel in which men are saved without Jesus ever showing up to raise them from their tombs. Some preach that one is born again when a sinner walks the aisle and repeats a prayer. And they'll say, we believe if you have said this prayer, you are born again. We believe that if you repeat after this prayer, you are born again. And that's a joke of a prayer. Because there's no prayer that causes a new birth. And yet others say, 
one gets born again when they get water baptized. Even worse, when they get sprinkled or when they were dedicated as a child. There's some people who think their eternity is in that experience of water baptism, of the sprinkling, of the dedication. The Bible nowhere teaches that there is a prayer that causes one to be born again and teaches nowhere that one is born again by being dedicated to God. People run to the Old Testament types and shadows and draw theology from things that were just types and shadows of Christ. Which things did not speak of them but of Christ. The dedication of Samuel by Hannah was not the normative for the church. In the New Testament, there's no teaching that you have dedicated your children to God. Look at how Samuel was born. Hannah could not conceive. So Samuel was born as a miraculous baby, as a type of Christ that was preaching on how Christ was going to be born. He was going to come from the Lord. And so when people go, and take that and say, okay, this is how I'm going to make my child a Christian. I don't think they have understanding of what this is all about. The New Testament gives us clear teaching on how one becomes a Christian. In John 3, verses 3 to 8, the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus in the conversation with Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, they cannot make a faithful testimony of who Christ is. They can't. Because that's what Nicodemus had tried to do. And Nicodemus said to him, verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So one has to be born again to see the kingdom of God. According to Jesus, that is a condition that has to be satisfied in the person if anyone is to receive him or believe the gospel. And this is not negotiable. This is not supplementary to all other things that we bring to him. He says this has to happen or else you never see the kingdom of God. So one needs a second birth, a new birth, or a rebirth. And one of the things that happens with people is that when they see a condition of salvation, they think they can do it. It does not mean that we are able to do the law of God just because he gave it. It does not mean that we are able to meet those conditions by ourselves. Jesus was stating what needed to happen before they could believe the gospel. He was not saying we could cause our own birth. 
But to Nicodemus and those who are not born again, that does not make sense. How can a man be born again when he is old? Why even talk about the new birth to one who is already born? Doesn't make sense. That does not make sense to Nicodemus and I agree with Nicodemus. Doesn't make sense. But that is a good question because it leads us to the answer that we need to understand about God's work of salvation. Salvation has many paths to it. It's very simple, but it also is very complicated. And it has many paths that people don't understand. A lot of people just think when they're buying a house, they, they are not looking for the foundation. They're thinking, I'm going to buy my house and get a new kitchen. I'm going to buy new couches and put new curtains without thinking about the foundation of the house. They are into the decoration. Make the house look pretty. But the fact that they overlook or ignore the importance of the foundation does not mean that it is not important. Something is important because it is important, not because we think it is important. But Nicodemus is thinking both rightly and wrongly about the matter. And rightly in that one cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again. Surely how can these things be? We have to come to that questioning because a lot of people never get shocked about anything about salvation. Because Nicodemus is thinking, I am already too big to crawl back into my mother's belly. And I'm not going to have my umbilical cord cut again. It is too late for my mother to have another baby shower for me. I'm a grown man. <laughs> baby shower for Stan. Nicodemus cannot get in the stroller again. You can't put him in the stroller. And probably Nicodemus is thinking, my mother is too old. And I'm such a big man, she won't be able to carry such a big man. Even if they were to shove me back into her belly. And maybe he's thinking, my mom is already deceased. Complicating matters even more for him. Because if this is how the new birth has to happen, then there's no hope for Nicodemus. But Nicodemus is right in comprehending the impossibility of the process. And many do not see the wonder of grace because they do not realize that one does not just decide to come to Jesus. We minimize grace because we do not understand the foundation that holds it. Grace is grace because we have absolutely nothing that we can do or have done to earn it or to receive it. It is totally outside our control. And we can't put ourselves into grace. And thankfully, we can't take ourselves out of grace. And we can't maintain ourselves in grace. Because the nature of grace is once it's been given, it's been given. <laughs> and that becomes the good news of the gospel. Because if it, if it were up to you to maintain yourself in grace, you'll be out the next minute that you received it. So if you're in, you're in. 
And if you're out, you're out. And so, when it comes to even prayer, this is one thing that we have to be thanking God for. To say, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for revealing Christ to me. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. But Nicodemus is wrong in thinking that this is something that has to happen or can happen in his mother's belly. He thinks, well, okay, whatever you're saying, Jesus, is something that has to happen in my mother. And so he is thinking fleshly. He is thinking the new birth is a birth that happens at the fleshly level. And so many bypass the significance of this teaching, preferring rather to teach the fables of salvation, of saying salvation is something that is within our capacity to accomplish. But this teaching is very important the teaching of the new birth. Because the new birth is what opens the door to faith and repentance. Men as sinners are not able to believe in Christ by themselves. Faith and repentance are produced by the Holy Spirit in the new birth, not in Nicodemus' mother's belly. So the new birth gives spiritual life and it awakens the sinner, the dead sinner, and gives them the power to receive signals from heaven. Okay? Spiritual signals from heaven. And so one does not just decide to repent. The command to repent and believe does not assume that we naturally possess the ability to do so. The command is just saying, this is what has to happen if one has to come to Christ. But it is God who causes both Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance come from God. They are gifts of God. And for you to have faith, you need power and you need life. To have repentance, you need power, you need life. Which God alone is able to give to a dead sinner. And Nicodemus' mother probably likes some slashes. The reason why I say that is. When I used to work at Beggar King, there was a lady who was expecting and she used to come like two times during my shift. Every single day. I used to work every day to get slashes. Her pregnancy just loved slashes. And if Nicodemus has to go back into his mother's belly, maybe his mother just was drinking slashes. That's all that she could do for him. But the new birth from above, it causes Nicodemus to see things that he could not see from his mother's belly. To desire things that his mother could not cause him to desire. When one is born again, they begin to praise God for his grace. They begin to say things like, salvation is of the Lord. And nothing in my hands I bring. And for the first time, they cry out, War is me, for I am undone. And they run to Christ, the city of refuge, to find help. They begin to repent from dead works. And dead works are works of trying to get approved by God. The works that a sinner does in themselves, thinking that by them, 
they may attain a righteous standing before God. Those are dead works because none is justified by their own works. So they begin to repent from their dead works unto the righteousness of the gospel that is by faith alone in the finished work of Christ. But the Lord says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, this is not about your mother. I know you probably love your mother, but let us forget about your mother. Your mother can give you the spiritual life that you need. Nicodemus had not read John 1 verse 12 and 13, which says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that statement there is what Jesus is expanding in the teaching. It's very purposeful. But Jesus answered, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. One has to be born of water and the Spirit for them to enter into the kingdom. And to be born of water is not to be water sprinkled or water baptized. That's not what this is talking about. Roman Catholicism would probably lean towards this and say, this is how you're going to enter into the kingdom of God. No, it does not work like that. It means one has to be born from above. Born of the Spirit and born of Christ Both the spirit and water come from above. They come from above. Christ is also from above. It is he who came by water and blood, the fluids of birth, water and blood, when he was pierced on the side. So the work of the new birth is a work that is done from above. It's not a work that can be accomplished here by anybody who is born of Nicodemus' mother. But why Jesus? Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So the flesh gives birth to the flesh, and the spirit gives birth to the spirit. A pig gives birth to piglets, not to lion cubs, and not to chickens. There's no pig that lays eggs, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go and collect some pig eggs. No, it doesn't work like that. Okay, And so, In like manner, the kingdom of God is spiritual. Why? Because God is spirit. God in his nature is spirit. And so to see the things of God that are spiritual, you also have to be made a spiritual being. And so for you to receive the testimony of the gospel, to see it and to enter into it, you also need to be made spiritual. And the flesh can't impart that to you. It can't give that to you because it is fleshly. It does not exist in that realm. So God alone who is spirit can give spiritual life. And so the Lord would say, continuing with the conversation with Nicodemus, verse 7 and 8, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now the Lord begins to speak to the sovereignty aspect of that new birth, to say this work is beyond the reach of one who is born in the flesh, especially one who is a sinner like you, Nicodemus. This work is not caused by the will or choice of the person. 
the flesh profits nothing. The flesh profits nothing. Jesus, are you serious? Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what you do. When it comes to salvation, even the best that you can do in the flesh profits zero. Not one percent. He says zero. It profits nothing. But still, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And I read somewhere about a conversation that George Whitfield had with a certain woman at this church. The lady came to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, why do you always say we must be born again? To which Mr. Whitfield said to the lady, because you must be born again. <laughs> and so everyone needs to be born again to see the kingdom. The Roman Catholic needs to be born again. The Methodist, the Mormon, the Jew, the five-point Calvinist, the Armenian needs to be born again because Jesus says, if that does not happen, it doesn't matter your theology. You won't see it. And this is the standard in the salvation equation. It is standard in the recipe of salvation. The new birth is not what pays for your sin. The blood of Christ is what paid for your sin. But the new birth is what opens you to that understanding, to that knowledge that enables you to partake of the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. So the new birth is standard. It is like salad dressing with a chicken salad. I, once in a while, I like to eat chicken salads. And I like my salad with dressing because salad and salad dressing, they go together. Unless if you are a weight watcher. <laughs> but I'm not a weight watcher. So I'll have mine with dressing. The only thing that I'm watching for is for Christ. I'm watching just for Christ. Okay. But the Lord says, Nicodemus, let me give you some picture to help you with understanding to clear your confusion. This work of the new birth is not in your hands to do or your mother. You have no power over it as to cause it. It is like the wind. When is the last time you control the wind and told it to change direction or to increase or decrease its strength? Yeah, if you get that, it's like that. You just see the effects of the wind on the trees and the leaves swaying back and forth, but you have no power to control it. And so is one who is born again. You only see the effects of the blowing of the Holy Spirit on them, the work of the Holy Spirit on them. But you can't tell when it actually happened. You can't command it. You can't command it. And as the wind blows softly sometimes, or as a tempest, so has been the experience of many believers. Sometimes when this wind comes, it comes as to uproot trees. And yet sometimes it comes as a gentle breeze. But the result is the same. If it is a new birth, one is going to be born again and they will receive the truth about Christ. And so that was our introduction. <laughs> because I think the new birth is very important understanding to our understanding of the gospel and where we are as believers. And so when Jesus came, verse 17 of John 11, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Lazarus was already in the tomb four days. 
And so I was doing the math to try and see what's going on with that because the message is sent out. And it looked like there was a day's journey. Jesus delays two more days. And then he comes back. That's four days. So if Lazarus was already in the tomb four days, it means they buried him as soon as they discovered that he was dead. They buried him right away. And this will not be surprising seeing that the Lord also was buried the very day that he died. Three hours after he died, he was already buried. But the Lord died around 3 p.m. and by 6 p.m. they already buried him. So this is not unusual for them to do this. Especially in the context of the story being a picture of what has to happen to Jesus. So when the Lord came to Lazarus, Lazarus was not just taking a nap. He was already dead, already in the tomb for days with no hope of getting up. And now that is the spiritual condition that the Lord found even all that he loves. He did not and does not find any of them looking for Jesus, but dead four days already in the tomb with no hope to ever coming out by themselves. And that is important theological understanding because one has to be dead before they can come to life. One has to be planted, a seed has to be planted into the ground and dies before it comes to life. That's Jesus' teaching. And so one has to be blind before they can see. And one has to be lost before they can be found. One has to be a sinner and ungodly before they are made righteous. That's just the formula that God has determined. And in John 9 Verse 40 and 41, the conversation that Jesus had with the Jews, with the Pharisees, it did not end very well with the Pharisees. John records and says, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? They have an issue with blindness. And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. Do you see that blindness is necessary before your eyes can be opened to the light? But since you say we see, your sin remains. If you said you are godly, then your sin remains because God cannot make you righteous. If you say you are alive when you are dead, God is not going to make you alive. So one has to be blind before they can see and they have to die before they are made alive. So the Pharisees did not see their blindness and claimed to see. And the Lord says, your sin remains. Which means your condemnation remains. So if you came to Christ, he did not find you chilling in the front row of the church with a big old Baptist hymnal singing Amazing Grace. No way, it doesn't work like that. He found you and I already dead and buried four days in the tomb. I was blind, but now I see is the testimony of all those who have seen their blindness. Blindness to God's way of salvation, to see the light of God's free and sovereign grace. And when your eyes have been opened, they only see Jesus as the only one who opened your eyes and as the only one 
whom God has accepted on your behalf. Verse 18. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So apparently the family of Lazarus lived very close to Jerusalem, just about two miles away. And so many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother, as was the practice in this culture. And this was very interesting to me because Jerusalem was the hotbed of those that hated Jesus. And I'm sure some of these people who came knew that the Lord had dealings with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They knew that. And also it seems to me that this family was very popular and respected and very influential even in the non-Christian circles. People still came to comfort them in spite of their relations with Jesus. Because Jesus used to go and hang out at their place. In this, I thought, as a way of application, we would learn something important. That even though we are of Christ, it does not mean that we are to cut ourselves completely from those that are not saved. Because these guys... They were always with Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, he does not rebuke the sisters for having all this company that hated him. But of course, as Christians, we also have boundaries on how we are to relate with those who are not of faith. But there's something that is happening here about the culture as far as the morning is concerned because in this culture, like in our culture in Zimbabwe, when someone dies immediately, As soon as you receive news that someone has died, you leave work, you leave everything that you're doing, you leave your house, and you go to be with them like right away. And so within two hours of the death being announced, you have 30, 40, 50, even 100, 200 people congregated at your house for the time of mourning until the person is buried. And then afterwards, some people, some closer relatives Close relatives will stay with the bereaved family for another few days, even few more weeks, until they are satisfied that you have recovered from your grief. And that is very, very important in dealing with such things as loss, because you're just there by yourself grinding memories and you need someone to comfort you. You are not thinking right. You have a whole lot of other things that need to be taken care of. And so everyone else who comes, they can come and they can be of assistance. And I think it helps with dealing with issues of depression. Because you have the kind of support that you need. So I think that is the spirit of the culture. And this is what is happening. They had come to console the family about their brother. Okay. And I think that is also the teaching that we have from Apostle Paul where he says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's the idea. Okay. But it is fascinating that in all the conversation or everything that is recorded about the trio, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, nothing is ever mentioned about the parents. It's just interesting to me. It seems the parents were never there or they probably were deceased. I would think so, because nothing ever is mentioned about the parents. But listen to verse 20 of John 11. Mother, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. 
but Mary stayed in the house. Martha probably heard from those who were outside that Jesus was coming. Most likely, under the settings, she was also in the house with the mourners. And word came to her that Jesus was, Jesus was easy to see. He traveled with his entourage. He was with his disciples. So it was very easy to see a group of men just coming headed their way. And I'm thinking, since there was a crowd from Jerusalem, she probably may have wanted to tell him not to get into the house. Rather to just be updated on the situation and tell him what's going on and see what Jesus could do without getting into confrontation with those from Jerusalem. Because at the end of the chapter, guess what? Things are not going to go well. But it's just my speculation. But it is interesting that it is Martha who went out to meet with Jesus and left Mary, the student, at the house. Martha, for all her business in the house, seemed to be the one who was also running around trying to see what was going on and what could be done, if anything, for her brother. Mary was still chilling in the house as she was chilling at the feet of Jesus. She just loved to chill. Just sit down. Take it easy. But I'm thinking she was obviously overtaken by much grief over the loss of her brother. Verse 21, Mother then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We do not know what other words were said by Martha, but it seemed the thing that was on her heart to tell Jesus was to let him know how distraught she was by the death of her brother and how it could have been prevented by his presence. This was a first order of importance to her, so she told him right away, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so she ties the death of Lazarus to Jesus and says, if he had been here, my brother would not have died. Death would not have overcome him because you would have healed him. You would have done something to spare us from the grief of this bereavement, even yourself. But in this, she was also preaching the gospel unknowingly. Because in the Bible, there's no record of anyone who died in the presence of Jesus. Even the two thieves on the cross died only after the Lord had already died. It's Jesus who died first, and then they died. What is that saying? It is saying that wherever Jesus is, there's life. Someone cannot die in the presence of Jesus and have Jesus continue to be the life and the resurrection. That is building the testimony of what Jesus is going to say of himself to say, I am the life and the resurrection. And so those statements are nuggets that are building to that confession. So Jesus and death do not occupy the same space. They don't live in the same house. But Mary was not operating with a complete knowledge of who Jesus was. The Lord need not have been there with them to prevent the death of Lazarus. Jesus did not need to be there. If you still remember, he healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who was not even with the mother when she met Jesus. 
And Jesus knew exactly who she was and where she was. So distance was not the matter with Jesus. He was and is not limited by distance in any way. His hands are not too short to reach. Actually, the Lord had some sovereignty thing that he did for me here. I just had this page open and I kept seeing it and seeing it. Isaiah 59 verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. That's him. That's him. His hands are not too short to reach. So distance is not an issue with Jesus. That's what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 59. Lazarus got sick and died, not because of distance between him and Jesus, but because Jesus loved him. He died because of his proximity to Jesus. Just like Job. Job got in trouble. Not because God had distanced himself from him. But because he. God had spoken well of Job. There's no one like Job. <laughs> and so before you know it. Job is already in trouble. And so we too may get in trouble. Not because. There's distance between us and Christ. But because. We are close to Christ. And because he has spoken well of us. And he loves us. And so getting in trouble. Because of proximity to Jesus. Not because of distance from Jesus. Verse 22. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God. God will give you. Martha still has hope. That Jesus is still capable. Of doing something miraculous. She thinks before. He was limited by distance. But now, you're here. <laughs> you are here. You can speak to God. And God will hear you. And he will grant you whatever you want. Mother does not tell the Lord what to do. But she puts agency in her speech. And says, even now, like right now, you can still do something about this Lord. Why? Because I know God hears you. And Martha is correct. But she's still missing the point. Jesus is God. And nothing is impossible with him. But she is also right. That God will grant Jesus whatever he asks of him. And in this matter, Martha is saying, if Jesus would ask God to raise his brother, surely God will hear him. And that is still very high theology from Martha because the Holy Spirit is by these statements giving us a profile of the person of Jesus and what his relationship to God is. And so he builds the testimony with statements by the mouths of people who were speaking more than they understood. Yes, God the Father is pleased with his son and the son does everything that he sees the father doing. And this aspect of God being pleased with the Son and granting the Son whatever he pleases has been lost in the gospel understanding of many people in the church. The teaching in the church is that the Son may fail to get some of those that he died to save. That he may lose some of those that he was given by the Father. But when he prayed, the Son said in John 6.39, This is the will of him who sent me. That of all, of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. 
and the security of salvation is in that God granted, God the Father granted everything that the Son asked of him. God the Father granted to Christ everything that Christ ever asked him. And the Son says, John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. And if this prayer is not answered for you, then there's no hope for anybody. This prayer was answered because God hears Christ. So if the Father always hears the Son, then all those that were given to the Son are going to come to the Son and none will be lost. And so when we preach and believe in a gospel that says one can be lost, then we are preaching a false testimony about the Son and about the Father. And that is a false gospel and there's no hope in such a gospel. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. The Lord is reassuring Martha. He said, well, your brother is going to rise again. But he left it as an open-ended statement. He did not say when Lazarus was going to rise again. Jesus did not say this day or next week. And that is why Martha followed up on the conversation and chimed in and said, I know, verse 24, that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha is coming with a date. Jesus does not have a date. So what is Martha doing? Martha is pressing for some immediate definition of time, of when this will happen, as to extract a more urgent answer from Jesus. And so she resigns to the end of the ages. She says, okay, if this is going to happen, Maybe at the end of the ages. She puts it hopelessly far away in the resurrection on the last day, she says. And when we have big circumstances and we need a speedy resolution, it may seem like the solution is too far away. It seems like the solution is at the end of the ages, too distant in the future, but not always. The Lord is able to resolve things that look like their solution is not available to us. Situations that are so dire that your only hope is maybe in death. But not always. But let us get some more understanding from what Martha is saying. What is this saying? When Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha holds to Jewish eschatology. And when we're talking about eschatology, we are talking about end time things, about judgment and salvation. At the end of the ages, God is going to appear and he's going to raise the dead. And those who did good, they're going to be raised to eternal life. And those who did evil, they'll be condemned. So essentially, that's eschatology. Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah says, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your Jew is as the Jew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So that's the end of the ages. That's the resurrection of the dead. 
Martha knows something about that. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So Martha knows all this eschatology. The Jews, including the Pharisees, believed in the resurrection of the dead. But there were, there was a sect of the Sadducees who did not. And if you still remember, Apostle Paul took advantage of that difference in eschatology in the book of Acts. Acts 23, 6-9, we have to read that. Apostle Paul, perceiving this group of people that he was arguing with over the gospel, perceiving that one group was Sadducees, one group were Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So this is such a big issue of the resurrection. In Jewish eschatology, is big. And Apostle Paul, who was supposed to be stoned, he survived by just bringing eschatology debate. <laughs> So the prevailing Jewish eschatology was that at the end of the ages, the dead will rise and be judged and those who did good would be reasoned to eternal life and those who did bad to eternal condemnation. And so Martha held to this linear eschatology where the resurrection of the dead would only happen at the end of the line, at the end of the ages. And so her hope of ever seeing a brother again was so distant. It was so distant. Verse 25. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's a war Jesus moment. That is a mouthful statement from Jesus. Jesus says, as against what you think, Martha, the resurrection is not just at the end of the ages. I am the resurrection and the life. The end of ages have come in the now time. I am the one who causes the resurrection. I am the I am. The one who gives life that is supposed to be given at the end of the ages. At the end of the ages, there is resurrection and Jesus comes and he experiences everything that is supposed to happen at the end of the ages. He dies, he resurrects, and he's glorified. It happens all with Jesus. So Jesus says, the end of the ages have invaded the now time. I am that resurrection. So that gives us a bigger picture of what is happening with Lazarus. Because Lazarus is an installment of what Jesus is about to do and what is going to happen to God's people who die in Christ. 
So Jesus says, I bring of what was supposed to happen in the future because the future is in me and the future is me. The future is here staring in your face. And because I am the resurrection and the life, the Lord says, he who believes in me will live if he dies. So there he gives us many gospel nuggets and hope for Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus died as one who was in Christ. The first statement, verse 25, addresses Lazarus' situation. The second part of the statement, verse 26, addresses Martha. Because Lazarus has already died, and so his hope is in verse 25. Mary has not yet died, Martha has not yet died, and their hope is in verse 26. So Lazarus died as one who was in Christ, and he too has hope of resurrection. And Jesus says, the way out of death is in believing him, or believing in him. So Jesus is the object of faith that gives the resurrection to life. Not just resurrection, but the resurrection to life. And so one who believes means one who has faith in this person called Christ. And this who believes, according to Jesus, is as good as possessing that resurrection and the life of that resurrection. But there's a problem with your theology, Jesus. Your theology does not make sense. Why? Because one cannot have life unless they are found worthy of it. Eternal life is not something that you just decide to have. Eternal life is only had by those who are qualified for it. Those who have earned it. Those who have been found worthy of it. Proper eschatology requires judgment before life can be given. Life is what is given after judgment. So how come that you say life is given by just believing? What do you mean, Jesus? What is so important about this believing? And what is so important about you? To believe in Christ means to enter into judgment. (laughs) To believe in Christ means one is already entering into judgment. They are already judged as righteous on account of Christ. Because it is he who has come to be judged on their behalf. Christ is he who has appeared now to face the eschatological judgment, the judgment that was supposed to happen at the end of the ages, Christ has brought it now, and he has entered it, and is going to enter it. At this point, he is looking to enter it on the cross. And those who believe are counted as already judged in him, and that is why they will live even if they die. They are not waiting to be judged at some particular time to possess that life. Jesus says, no, this is not the transaction of salvation because I have appeared to be judged for them on their behalf. But how can one live who has died? Because for one who has believed, death is not because of condemnation anymore. 
Lazarus did not die because of condemnation. So as long as you have not died because of condemnation, you shall live. Lazarus died as one who was in Christ. So when you die, you are not dying because of condemnation. When the unbeliever dies, they die because of condemnation. So those are two different kinds of death. For the believer, death is for opening the gateway into a new arena of life in Christ. That's what death is doing. Verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And the Lord says, of these who have not yet died and believe in him, they will never die. The one who lives and believes in me will never die. So you and I will never die according to Jesus. Not according to what some other theologians and people are saying. I'm going with Jesus on this one. According to Jesus, the one who lives and believes in him will never die. And it's only Jesus who knows what that death means. And he comes and promises us and says, if you believe, you are never going to die. You're not going to die. So what we think is death, according to Jesus, is not death. If you belong to him. <laughs> if you belong to him. And the Lord says to Martha, do you believe this? And that is a gospel question. Do we believe that one, the one who believes in Christ will live and never die? Do you believe that? As for me, my answer is yes, I believe I shall never die. There's someone who asked me, well, if you're going to die today, how would you like to die? And I said, I'm not going to die. Jesus said, if I believe, I won't die. I don't know about you. I live because Christ lives. I'm not going to die. Now that is the testimony of Christ for those who believe. And I have much hope in that promise. I'm going to talk about this next week because this is one of the areas that I'm very sensitive about. Why? Because personally, I actually long to see Jesus. I want to see him. And any teaching that delays that, it makes me sad. I mean, I always get surprised that it actually makes me sad. I don't want to hear it. I am so much into seeing Jesus. And I think I want to see him. But listen to what Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 to 15 as we finish. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 to 15. Peter says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. As also our Lord Jesus Christ is made clear to me. And I'll also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. Just pay attention to the language that Apostle Peter is using. It doesn't sound like someone who is just dying and going cold in the grave. He says the body dies because it is an earthly dwelling. It was made for life on earth. This is not a heavenly body. It is not yet fitted for heaven. And that is why Peter says he was going to lay it aside. The believer does not die. They lay aside their earthly dwelling. Just taking off a cot. The earthly dwelling that is not yet fitted for heavenly life. 
that is death for the believer. Verse 27, that will be our last verse. John 11, so she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And again, Sister Martha makes another heavy theological statement. She gives the highest Christological confession of Jesus, which is what John is working to do in his thesis, to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that believing you may have life in him. And so she brings the testimony here and says, I have believed you are the Christ, the Messiah, and not only that, you are the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. And that's a double confession. That's a double confession. We'll talk more about that next week. But it is the same confession that Peter made of the Lord. If you still remember, who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Martha makes this confession as we have been going through the chapter. Her theology of Jesus is mixed. Sometimes she gets it right. Sometimes she doesn't. And here, at this point, I think the Lord God the Father has given her another confession of Christ. A high confession of Jesus. And this confession is very important because it's tied to salvation. Salvation is in that confession. There are some who call themselves the anointed ones. Not just that they have the anointing. They say they are the anointed ones. So when they claim that, they are claiming to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because it's only the Christ, the Son of God, who is the anointed one. And so the identity of Christ is important to his work. His work of salvation means nothing if the identity is wrong. You can say everything that Jesus did and say, oh, James did that. Okay, no hope for you. So if that identity is denied or is compromised, we have compromised salvation and the hope of the gospel the work of christ has merit and the gospel is the power of god under salvation only because of who was appointed to perform it there were two thieves on the cross and they too were nailed just like jesus and yet their death did not accomplish the salvation of anyone let alone themselves why because they were not the christ they were not the son of the living god the power to give life and the commandment to give life belongs only to this one who is called Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. So in conclusion, what do we say? Those who are in Christ have much hope even in the circumstances and sicknesses of this life. The circumstances of their life right now is not the end of their life. That is not the commentary of their life. The trials that they have are appointed of the Lord. They are very purposeful. And even though he may appear to delay in coming, and even though he may appear to have taken an errand to Zacchaeus' house, he is not by this delayed, by these commitments, because he's God. But praise God that he also had to pass through Jericho to see the blind beggar and Zacchaeus. Because that is how he also came to you. He had to pass through your house 
on his way to my house. His schedule is never full. Jesus does not have a calendar that's full. His schedule is never full. It is only the timing and the purpose that drives things. He knows the end for which things have come and appointed. The sickness is not unto death. The trial is not unto death and it's not for punishment. That's another important thing. Lazarus did not die because of punishment. That was not the purpose. And yet it brought much suffering to the sisters and even to Lazarus himself. The trials that we have are not for our destruction, but for our building up. Even when muscle is growing, they, when you exercise, you actually destroy the muscles so that they can grow up again. It is for the glory of God that we also may believe. It is for the building up of faith. And it may be frustrating when things have reached points that we think they can't be recovered anymore, like they have already died. You just give up. They are stinking and you have buried them. And yet the Lord says, it's not over until I show up. (laughs) There's still hope. As long as Jesus is coming your way, there's still hope. He can bring things back to life. And how many times did we go through situations in our lives already that we thought, okay, this is beyond redemption. Or have people that we think, okay, I don't think this can be saved. They are so hardened to the truth. I don't even, I have told them everything that can be told about the gospel that I know and yet they still reject it. So what's the conclusion of that? You are saying they're already in the tomb. (laughs) That's the conclusion. But just wait until Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, guess what? Their testimony is going to change. But in the process of waiting, we may get angry like the sisters. The sisters were angry and get frustrated at the delay of the Lord. But he works much glorious things when he shows up that we can't blame him when all is said and done. So all the things that we worry about salvation. What if this other person, friend of mine, relative of mine, mother of mine is not saved? How is that going to be like to not have them in heaven? And it's a very good question. But when Jesus shows up, I think everything will be well. Everything will be well. Because there is no... What's the word that I'm looking for? It disappeared. It's, it's there. I had to use that word or it was not going to come out, right? So let's forget about it. But the point is, his wisdom and love shall be vindicated. And we shall praise him all the more for his wonderful works. The Lord is, he is so good, he is so perfect. There's nothing that you can impeach him for. So praise the Lord Jesus Christ. He is such a faithful and wonderful savior. And he may seem like he delays, but when he shows up, he always makes things right. Therefore, be happy in Jesus, for our sicknesses are not unto death, but to his glory, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for the sicknesses that you have put on us, the trials that we battle with, that seem to not have a solution, that seem to not be abetting or coming to an end. And yet the testimony that we have from the story of Lazarus is that all these things are appointed by you, not because you dislike us, but because 
you are working much greater things. That we may believe that others may also believe that Christ may be glorified in all these things. Now Lord, we just pray that you grant us grace to be able to wait upon you as you come your way, as you come our way to resolve what matter is bothering us. Lord, we pray and just thank you for this wonderful story of the hope of the resurrection that is Christ and the simplicity of the transaction of salvation that those who believe in him shall live even if they die. And there's no one who can even begin to give that kind of hope to anyone. And yet we have this hope just by faith, without any works whatsoever. And Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful message, wonderful gospel that you have given us in John chapter 11. May you be with your people as they go out. May you bless them. May you strengthen them. And Lord, may you bring us again or back here next week uh, if you so please. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.